0: and welcome to Smart Loving Conversations, the place where we discuss all things Catholic marriage. I'm Francine Parola.
1: And I'm Laura Kane from Smart Loving, a global network that accompanies couples as we together explore how to maximise the good times and learn from the bad ones.
0: With our guests, we explore love, marriage, family and living the Catholic faith, setting our sights on heaven while keeping our feet on the ground or in the mud and muck that life throws our way. We've been there and so have our guests.
1: Join us for better and for worse as we dive deep into real-life conversations of struggle and triumph.
0: Welcome friends and listeners of Radio Maria Australia to Smart Loving Conversations. This episode we're talking about our formation from our family of origin. So Laura, what's your experience with this topic? Have you had much to do with thinking about this?
1: Yeah, well, when we sponsor couples, Fran, through the Smart Loving Engage program, this is lesson three of the course and couples have really amazing feedback about it and they spend a lot of time on it. So it's a really important topic to explore both your families of origin and understand how that shapes and influences you and your marriage. So very mm-hmm. important topic. I'm really excited to break it open with you.
0: Yeah, great, great. So,
1: Fran, how was, uh, before we get into family of origin as a topic, how has your walk with the Lord been these past days? You've had a busy couple of weeks, I know.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I've just sort of on the the downside of the Plenary Council Assembly um, here in Australia, which is a, a major event, a lot of media coverage and so on. Um, Look, parts of that week, it was quite intense. The weather was just absolutely abysmal. It was just blustery, windy, rainy, umbrellas getting blown in and out, which is a little bit of a metaphor, I think, for just the the nature of some of the discussions. It was quite tense, particularly at the beginning of the week. In some ways, I was a little bit traumatised by by the politicisation of some of the discussions, but I've really just been leaning into the Jesus prayer, which is, you know, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me a sinner. I found that a real steadying influence for me, just to remind me that I'm not perfect in this. I not not to sort of to avoid getting on my high horse and being judgmental, but just to stay in touch with we're all travelers, in the words of Marie McKillop, we're all travelers here, we're all seeking to follow the Lord. We might have different opinions about it, but just have a little bit of humility around. Um, the judgments that I might be making around what was going on there so yes that Jesus prayer has just been a godsend for me.
1: It's interesting, I have mercy on me as in uh, the theme of mercy because I was speaking to my old housemate yesterday and she'd just been on a trip to Poland for a wedding and she's not religious but she was showing me all her pictures from the trip and the highlights and she stopped at a photo of a cake and it was a Polish cake and she said, oh, Laura, you're going to love this story and I knew, I saw the picture and I knew exactly what cake it was so I excitedly interrupted her and I'm like, oh, that's kremówka," <laughs> and she was laughing and she's like, how did you know? the name of that cake this random polish cake and i said well that was saint pope john paul's favorite ca- cake and when i went to poland for world youth day you know i had some so um that just reignited my interest in um saint pope john paul and sister Faustina. so i've been and the divine mercy Uh, image and prayer and so the chaplet so I just started I've been hanging out with Jesus good mates, sister Faustina and Saint Pope John Paul and just rereading their stories and wanting to be open to how God will work in my own story life and marriage so that's my walk with Mm. Jesus the last couple of days
0: (laughs) it's that whole message of divine mercy it's just so liberating and so life-giving I um I, I love it
1: absolutely I was just gonna say it's just so remarkable too. Just you couldn't you couldn't write a better story.
0: I agree. Shall we dive into it?
1: Let's dive into the topic. So
0: the influence of family of origin. So what I'm gonna do is just unpack a couple of I guess almost they're like principles upon which we can dissect and interpret the different aspects of how our family of origin, so that's really looking at our family from our childhood experiences and how it plays out in our marriages. Um, the first point is really just to accept and recognise that we're influenced, that we're not as independent as we like to think we are. Uh, There's a you know, very strong cultural assumption uh, in our society that, hey, I'm an adult, I make my own decisions. Well, we do to a certain extent, but there's a very strong subconscious influence that's coming through our family of origin those early years, particularly in terms of the lens of how we how we interpret the events of our lives. And so therefore our family of origin is one of the most powerful influences. It kind of created the window frame through which subsequent experiences were perceived and interpreted. So... For example, an infant, one of the first things we, I guess, determine or uh, perceive as an infant, even before we have language to form kind of words around it, is, is the world safe? and that can go back to even experiences within the womb it's some some pregnancies take place in difficult circumstances our in early interactions as a toddler whether we were comforted you know with uh, appropriately and yeah you know, whether we had a, a caregiver who was responsive to our needs and our pleas for when we had needs that, you know hunger and sleep and so on um, that all creates a kiss a perception around is this world safe am i safe here as just as an example and that's happening all the way through our early childhood years we're forming i guess a worldview based on our experiences in those younger years so when it comes to our formation for marriage one of the most powerful influences is our parents they were the most readily accessible role model for marriage and that came through really observation of our parents and how they interacted with each other That applies even if we came from a home life or a situation where one parent was not there either through death or um, a single parent sort of formation of a family or divorce or so on, there was still the role of the parents, the role of the primary caregivers that were very significant in terms of modelling for us what marriage looks like. So it might sometimes have been... Perhaps a you know it wasn't our direct parent, but it might have been grandparents or uncles and aunts or the neighbours that could have that would have formed our kind of ideas around well, what does how do the husband and wife behave towards each other? Now, one of the things that couples often say to us when we come to this topic is, particularly if they're very devoted Christians, is is they'll have some resistance to I guess, looking into this topic, because the Bible is really clear around honouring our parents, honouring our mother and father. And so we'd like to just point out that it's really important to remember that we're formed by our perception, not by the reality. So to just give you an example of how we saw this playing out with our own children. My husband Byron observed one day, overheard our then young son, Chris, I think he was maybe six or seven, telling his younger brother, daddies don't cry. As Byron kind of says, well, actually, he does cry, Dad. as dad, he, had, he does cry, but that hadn't been Christopher's experience. Christopher had never seen him cry. So therefore, his conclusion was daddies don't cry in an absolute sort of sense. So it wasn't the reality, but it was a perce- his perception that was forming him in that idea that daddies don't cry. Um, we see the same thing sometimes when we have siblings doing these activities and they've come from the same family, but they'll draw quite different conclusions about what was happening in their family of origin i don't know laura if you've got any kind of examples or experiences of that phenomenon happening
1: yes i do i have an example where perception was more influential than reality my own family of origin my father's retired now but he owned a hairdressing salon for most of my life and Now, if you work in a service industry, think hairdresser, chef, you own a retail store, you know, Thursday nights, Saturdays and Sundays, it's your busiest time periods. So you just have to be there as a business and as an owner, otherwise you just won't survive. So my middle brother, James, he is and was excellent at sports, very good at athletics, talented at soccer. So he really shined on the sports field. And he, my brother and his wife and I were chatting and reminiscing about our childhood and he shared that he felt quite sad that dad could not be there on those Saturday and Sundays when he would win a medal, break a record or his team got to the finals and now I also had important sporting moments, but I didn't feel sad that dad was not on the sidelines because I was aware if dad was not running the business and if he was not there at the salon, uh, he we wouldn't have the money mm. to play the sport. So mum was always there watching and recording and taking photos and reporting back. And she was full time at home with us. And that was largely due to dad being at the salon most of the time. Also, I think because I would also be in the salon as a young girl, I would stay and sweep up the hair, answer the phones, and I would witness and hear dad singing the praises to the clients, (laughs) to the ladies' hairs he he was doing, about how his children were marvellous and had broken this record and kicked this goal. So I I could sense that he wanted to be there and desired to be there and and marvelled in our talents and seeing us evolve. So he was yeah and i witnessed you know mum being like oh it's your father ringing again to get reports on the day <laughs> so i was saying back to james and kind of defending uh, defending what i experienced and my reality of of dad and I was saying yes but mum was there representing the both of them and reporting back and so that was interesting to just hear mm. James's perspective versus my perspective and how we both felt about that so my brother was now then saying that he's got his own kids and he wanted to make sure he didn't miss any sporting moments um because of his work and so we were just debating whether whether that was reasonable and <laughs> and achievable I guess so yeah. yeah that's that's a good example of the
0: the The perception yes Mm. yes. yeah 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 and it's really not uncommon we we hear that a lot that siblings compare notes they'll often have taken away very different interpretations of of what was really happening in their parents relationship in their families and uh, it's it's so it really is a very unique activity i suppose that each each couple uh, each individual has to kind of really take that journey themselves to understand that influence in their lives so that's the first kind of point, I suppose. The second point I'd just like to make is that there's two different modes that's really helpful when we're thinking about formation in terms of our marriages, two different ways to, or two different modes to look at. One is, is the marital role model. So I've already alluded to this. And this basically we will form through observation of our parents relating to each other. How do husbands and wives behave? What's normal? What are their roles? for example, in the distribution of household chores, which would have been happening before our eyes. for example. Even when there's an absent parent, other figures, such as the way mum might have interacted with a, a new partner or a stepfather or so on, or grandparents, can kind of create those sense of impressions or those belief systems around, this is what is normal for a family, this is how families operate. The second mode is what I would call direct interaction. So this was through our relationship with each of our parents. And each parent has different sort of role. Our same-sex parents, so for me as a woman, it would be my relationship with my mum, was really, I think, quite important and influential in terms of messages around puberty and and sex education and so on, because that tends to be one of the things that the same-sex parent takes on as a particular responsibility in the forming of their children. And that can be quite significant in terms of, of the messaging that comes through, the the sense of celebration and joy and acceptance of our human sexuality versus um, negativity and so on. So that's one area that we think is a really good one to just reflect on. And then with our other sex parent, this is quite an interesting one and a little bit counterintuitive because sometimes that's really where I as a woman practised being a woman in relationship to another man. So my dad is the most significant man in my life in those early years. And until I met Byron, he was the most significant man. And so that, and research tells us that that relationship that we have with our parent of the other sex is really important in terms of influencing our mate selection. So we tend to be attracted subconsciously to a future mate who in some way relates to us in similar ways to what our parent because that's what we're used to right we've been I've been relating to my dad in in a particular pattern and so when Byron comes along and there's similarities in the way he relates to me it feels really comfortable and right and there's a sort of a sense of ease about that sort of relationship so that can be a really good one to just I guess keep in the back of our minds do you have experiences a similar kind of dynamic happening for you laura
1: i think my dad and joseph my husband are both very hard working and so that was yeah. attractive um and they get their energy from people so they are very both very talkative whereas they're not shy males and they could talk more than me <laughs> um yeah. good with good communicators um, i can verify that <laughs> <laughs> and you know there are differences though my dad is a bit more creative and messy, whereas Joe has to have everything in its place and quite structured. So mm-hmm. when the plan gets changed unexpectedly, Joe can get quite frustrated. And I have I've said before, oh I wish you were more like my dad when things don't go to plan, just laugh it off and relax and go with the flow. So there are there there's similarities and differences, which yeah. yeah, you have to get used to yeah, <laughs> when classic. in early marriage.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so just one last little idea just to plant in the minds of our listeners before we go to a break the the third point is really to then think about well how do we react to that formation and there's two typical reactions the first one is what we call we adopt we adopt the formation we adopt the ideas and that's like almost like a mannerism or a gesture, or sometimes we get like family mottos or sayings that perhaps our father or mother kind of says or grandparents say all the time. And it kind of has, it's a passive acceptance. It sort of happens really very, in a very subconscious sort of way. But the other way we react sometimes is in radically opposite, in a rejection. So there's like an active resistance. We see something happening or experience something in our family of origin and we decide we don't want to be like that it somehow caused us pain we made a judgment. So like your brother would be a good example. Dad wasn't at the sideline. That's a, what we would call a rejection of that formation. I'm going to be there forever again, kind of thing. Another good just general example is around religious belief. We see that often. Some children, as they grow up to adults, they accept the religious traditions and beliefs of their family of origin, and others rejected it quite dramatically. Now the point about it is is whatever we decide to react to it, it's are we acting in freedom? Because adopting it without thinking about it, we haven't really, we're just sort of kind of going on an autopilot. That's not the ideal. Mm -hmm. It's much better to be intentional. Um, Or even if we're reacting, we think we're making a choice against it, but sometimes it's because we're acting out of a woundedness and so there's a sense of compulsivity about it. There's not really a, a freedom there. So Adopted or rejected, it's it's the decision is ours. But the point is, are we acting in freedom? And if there's uh, you know a, a, either a um, a sort of a, an ignorance or a, a lack of awareness of what we're doing, or there's just this compulsive thing, neither of those are really free. So part of the process of analysing our family of origin is so that we can actually make some conscious choices around that.
1: Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back to explore how our family of origin plays out in the day to day. Welcome back to Smart Loving Conversations. We've been talking today about the influence of our family of origin, and we're ready to go deeper and explore how it plays out in our marriages.
0: Yeah, most of the formation that we get from our families is positive and it's helpful. And it's really important for us to acknowledge that. Sometimes we can just sort of drift through life and we've actually, probably most of how we're operating in our families is is been good formation. It's been a really positive and helpful. And we just adopt it without really understanding, hey, there's an actually an alternative. So that's not the case in every family. So I think it's helpful to sometimes just step back a little bit and identify, hey, I got that from mum and dad's example. And that's a really good thing. And I'm embracing that and making the choice around it. And by the way, thanks, mum and dad. So an example for me would be just the witness of my parents to lifelong commitment. I did see them as a child, sometimes arguing, but we also saw them making up. So we we had an example of a couple that were very consciously trying to develop and nurture their relationship. Um, Each of my siblings, my my brother and sister, and that, that was very kind of apparent to us. Well, that's a great thing for me to say that's a good value and you know and to thank them for that when the opportunity arises. What about you? Have you got something from your background that you can think of?
1: Yes. One positive thing I took from my own formation was that dad was really the one who put the importance on the faith. So he was the Catholic uh, figure and my mum was Church of England. My mum actually became Catholic when we were teenagers, but every Sunday dad would make sure we were at mass. And then we would also in the evening have a family rosary with my extended family, aunts and uncles. And so when I was dating Joe, I had said to him, his family of origin, he his mother was she was the Catholic and the dad was uh, Christian, uh, non non Catholic but evangelical. So when dating Joe, I said, "Look, I want you to be the spiritual leader. So I want you to become more active in your faith." So that was a thing from my family of origin, and I had read how important it was that the father take interest in the faith if any children come along. That that's it's really important that the father is a faithful spiritual leader.
0: Mm, really true that that father influences. Obviously, mums play a big role in that as well. But you're right, the research does show that the father has impact on the next generation is stronger, Uh, their example in the faith. Okay, so that's positive formation. Now we want to just look at problem formation. And we look at, encourage our couples to look at three different ways that formation can become problematic. The first one is really easy, everybody gets it. It's just incompatible expectations. So in one household, the husband was exposed to this sort of idea and in the other household, the the wife's family of origin was different. So an example from my life is our father's working hours. My dad was a retail chemist, pharmacist. So it was regular um, shop hours thursday nights and saturday mornings no sunday trading back in those days but mm-hmm. it was pretty predictable he closed up the shop at quarter to six he was home by five past six dinner was on the table by six thirty. so there was a regularity in the routine whereas byron's father was a doctor and he worked in a hospital and he had rounds to do after hours he sometimes was rostered on christmas day and public holidays so he, the hours were much more unpredictable and that was his norm so we came into marriage with two very different expectations around what was the normal sort of working hours for the breadwinner to um to do and i was deeply confused and and distressed when byron would be late home from work night after night after night and he couldn't really understand what was the big deal this is just what dads do this is what the breadwinner does
1: Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Well, my example in my own family of incompatible expectations that I took into marriage was mum was trained in banking before she became a full-time mum. So she took charge of all our family finances and documentation of the family. So dad earned the money from running the hairdressing salon and being the face of that and on the tools. And mum managed all the investments, the paperwork and paid the staff, the bills, et cetera. So I was expecting to do the same as my mum in our marriage but that was an incompatible expectation. I wasn't trained in accounting. I wasn't going to be any better at Joe at doing it. So we both needed to be aware of what was going on financially and make investment decisions together about, you know, the mortgage and things like that. Mm, Good
0: example. Good example. So the next type of problem, so that's incompatible expectations. The next type of problem formation is a little bit harder to get your mind around, and we call this compatible but suboptimal. And sometimes it can be obvious and other times it's really subtle. So let me just give you an obvious example. For, say, for example, that you both came from families where the dad was an alcoholic, You would have compatible, like that's the same expectation, that's the same family experience, mum's react in this way, dads are doing it when dads are drinking too much. So you've got that dynamic between mum and dad around this. But I think we could all see that it's a suboptimal. It's not the ideal to be having either parent drinking too much or dependent on alcohol or drugs. You could look at it with violence or with infidelity or a divorce, for example. We know that children that are raised in families where there's been a lot of marriage breakdown, that that is not the optimal. But it's the same. The thing is, it's, it's going to seem like normal to them because they've got it from both families. So a more subtle one that we could I could point to in my history is, again, just going back to that example of arguments and making up, We we both got strong formation in both families around the importance of forgiveness and reconciling as a couple. Mm. But what we often missed or didn't see was that actual process that our parents undertook to come to that place of forgiveness. And the message that we, both of us, Byron and I, took away from our families and the the two different households, which were very similar in the formation, was is that, Forgiveness was the primary goal, and we would jump to forgiveness when we had hurt each other without ever really exploring or understanding what had caused the hurt in the first place. So we found ourselves having the same argument over and over again because we never actually discussed it and resolved it. We just kind of went to, hey, I'm supposed to forgive you, so I'm going to forgive you straight away, even though you've got no idea what you just did that hurt me, and I I don't feel like I've got the right to tell you what that, that is. So that was an example, I suppose, um, of a compatible formation, but it was playing out suboptimally optimally in our marriage because we didn't get the formalness of the picture of what was involved. Mm,
1: great example, Fran.
0: Yeah, it's again, it's a little bit more subtle because it's actually, you don't look at it and say, oh, well, that was a negative behaviour or a negative example from the parent. It's actually a good example of formation from our parents. But the problem was, is that we weren't getting the fullness of the picture. Yes. So that's, again, it's one of those things a little bit more subtle, but worth reflecting on because it can be causing problems and difficulties in your relationship in a way that's not sort of, you're really aware of. The third type of problem formation is uh, what we call emotional injuries. So these can be actions or events, emissions or exposure to trauma or whatever that um, we're just exposed to in our growing up. And the reality is our parents are limited. Um, They're sinful. they make mistakes. We lose our temper as a parent. I can tell you I've done that many times. And so those kinds of experiences that my children have with me or I had with my parents can cause an emotional injury and a harm to the the delicate psychology and the emotional life, the spiritual life of, of the child. And that then predisposes us, I suppose, to it's a vulnerability that we carry into our adult relationships. And so I I guess an example of that, again, for me is that through my father's line, his father and then dad, and then to me, there was just, a, I guess, a culture of criticism. There was this sort of perfectionism that manifested with comments around, well, you know, you you might get 95% in a maths test, but it'd be what happened to the 5% kind of comment that sort of focusing on the deficit all the time. And that was something that I adopted and carried into my marriage, and it was really quite hurtful to Byron you know, it was always looking at the negative or the deficit rather than looking at the bigger picture and saying, oh, wow, you've got 95%. That's amazing. Yeah. You got an example from emotional injury?
1: I do. Yeah. So I have an emotional injury that Joe is aware of and has popped up in our marriage. It was a result of one of my best friends in early primary school saying that she did not want to be my best friend anymore. And it sounds trivial as a, you know, 30 something year old to talk about it but this really broke my heart at the time and it left a deep emotional injury and it just raised big questions for my little young mind and heart like how can someone love you and be your best friend, and then just one day say that they're not your best friend anymore? And it goes to the heart of your sense of self and that you are loved and lovable. So this emotional injury has played out in our marriage, uh, especially as we've been trying to have children for many years with no success. And in my downer moments, um, I've said things and thought things like, "If we never have kids, are you going to get fed up of me and not love me anymore?" And Joe, like was quite shocked to hear me ask that question and to say that. So we dug a little deeper and used, you know, the wonderful tools Mm -hmm. we learned in smart loving to reflect on those feelings. And I realized it was linked to this emotional injury from my childhood, mixed with the trauma of infertility too, I'm sure. But part of, I guess, being a Christian and Catholic and knowing Jesus is knowing that you're loved by God no matter what. And that, what I have been realing, realizing as well through my marriage and your marriage is a reflection or it should be a reflection of that love that God has for you. That, you know, Joe, Joe will love me. God loves me forever and always and and Joe will too. So that's yeah, an emotional injury that it pops up in strange in strange times and places in, in
0: our marriage. Mm, yeah, and and plays out with quite significant consequences. And it's a good example, actually. I mean, we've been focusing very much on the parents and the influence of the parents, but there's anything that happens in our childhood can um, really have long-term impact. And so we'll often say to people, if they're not getting any traction on, I can't understand where this is coming from, we'll often say, well, what about your relationship with your grandparents or your siblings? Because sometimes they can be really influential or in this case, you you know, your best friend was very, very significant in setting, I guess, planting a seed of unworthiness that then was manifesting and being triggered later on down the track.
1: Yeah, 100%, it's so important Mm. to be self-aware and understand what's happened.
0: Yeah, thanks for for trusting us with that story, Laura. It's really, really profound and um, we probably need to take a quick break now. So we'll um, uh, have a little song and then we'll be back soon.
1: Hello and welcome back. You're listening to Smart Loving Conversations on Radio Maria Australia. We've been talking about the influence of our family of origin on our marriages and now it's time to get practical.
0: So we've covered some of the background principles of family of origin and looked at, tried to give you kind of, I guess, some tools and some frameworks around how to interpret what's going on and and break it down. The question we want to do now is, that's been looking back into the past. Now we want to look at how does it play out in the present? How do we decode those family of origin factors that arise in situations of conflict and intention in our marriage today, you know, on a, on a day-to-day basis? And I'm immediately my mind's going to many situations that Byron and I have had in our life where we're just kind of doing life. It might be a Saturday morning, uh, we've woken up, everything's going great, we're feeling you know, loving and close to each other, we're having some nice breakfast or going for a walk or whatever, and then all of a sudden something happens, Byron says something or I say something, and it's like we're just ambushed. It's like blindsided by this rush of negative emotion that comes up and all of a sudden we're on edge with each other and feeling unloved. And I guess that's a classic sort of situation that many couples can relate to, that sort of sense of, hey, I've just been triggered. I've gotten, where did this come from? Give you a little example of this. So we call it our espresso cups example. You know, a couple of years ago, maybe five or six years ago, we got a new espresso machine and it came with an extra set, a bonus set of espresso cups. Now at the time, nobody in our family was drinking espresso. We were all having lattes and cappuccinos. So I put the espresso cups in the back of the cupboard for future use about a year later some guests come over and one of them wanted an espresso no problem i'm making the coffees i'm digging around the back of the cupboard can't find the espresso cups I'm checking the drawers i'm trying to the next shelf down where are the espresso cups borrowed and he says oh i threw them out because we weren't using them byron oh my gosh <laughs> i was so triggered i was so emotionally aroused i was furious and I guess one of the clues straight away is that there was this irrationality about it. even though he would told me he'd thrown them out, I kept looking in the cupboard expecting them to magically appear. So that was kind of like, I guess, the arousal and the just feeling emotionally very upset was the first clue. And the second one was this, this irrational Disbelief, kind of magical thinking going on mm. that was signs that there was something much deeper going on. So, what can you do about it? Well, sometimes in the heat of the situation, you just have to hold it together. And that's a part of a mature emotional life where we don't just give in to our kind of emotional demands and, and let them the run away and drive our life and cause all sorts of chaos. Uh, but later, after our guests had left, I took it to prayer and I sat down and just used what we call our time out to ask why tool. So time out to ask why. When I'm reacting strongly or feeling irritated with the other, it's a bit of a time out. So step back from the situation, step back from the person, the husband or the wife or the boss or the friend or whoever it is that's triggering you and ask why. Why am I reacting this way? And where is this coming from? And when I did this, I got some really important insights. It took me straight back to my childhood and my relationship with my dad, who is a bit of a neatnik. He likes order and he had a very strong routine every evening. He would take the garbage out. And before he took the garbage out, he'd do a sweep of the, the family spaces and he'd pick up all the bits of half finished drawings or homework or trinkets or whatever and he'd throw them out Mm. and there was a couple of times when he threw out things that were really precious to me Um, they weren't necessarily valuable they were just precious to me they were toys or things that he thought i no longer needed or i'd grown out of drawings that i hadn't finished or you know favorite pencil or something like that and it felt like such a violation that i had no sense of agency around the things that were mine and that were precious to me that he didn't respect that and of course, Byron had stepped on that landmine. It was sitting there as a wound beneath the surface, like a landmine that you can't even see, not even aware of. And all of a sudden he stepped on it and it's just blowing up in our faces and <laughs> faces of our poor guests. But it allowed me, using that little tool all the time out to ask why, allowed me firstly to analyse what was going on, see the roots in my family of origin, the emotional injury from my dad, and then also kind of to take steps to process that, take to prayer, to give my dad for his limitations. I can laugh now. It's still a little bit tender, but I can laugh now. He's still doing it. He's still throwing out my mum's stuff. And my poor mum just sort of says, Dad said I can't keep this. Can you use it? It's part of his character and his, you know, he's the way he operates. So we can kind of embrace that with tenderness and without it kind of really hurting as much as it might otherwise. Yeah. What about you, Laura, you got an example?
1: I have, we call it the onion story, not the espresso cup story. <laughs> I'm so already true, crying. <laughs> true story, we had a fight over the way Joe cut an onion, and it's funny but embarrassing to talk about. But this is a really good example of that self-awareness and you know the time out to ask why tool coming into effect. So if I can explain the context of what happened, you know, if Joe says something, you can start
0: digging yourself a hole. I know. My <laughs>
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, If Joe says he likes something to do with his meals, I pay attention, right? Smart, loving, store it in my brain. So, for instance, if he likes chilli flakes on his pizza or whatnot. So, I'm usually the meal prepper in our house. Not always, but most of the time. So, I went through a stage of making Greek salads and preparing them in mason jars for the days ahead. So, I showed Joe one time how I liked to cut up all the ingredients, cucumber, tomato, feta, olives, onion, and the certain way that I like to prep it and cut it. And so Joe listened and watched and that was that. So fast forward a few weeks later and I I wasn't feeling very well. So Joe had to prepare the meal that evening, grilled chicken with a Greek salad. So he had a go at the way that, you know, cutting up all the ingredients and the way he cut the onion that particular day was not the way I had showed him. So I slice it quite thinly so that you don't get, you know, an overwhelming taste of onion. And Joe had cut it in these really thick onion chunks. and so. He puts the meal in front of me and I was trying to eat this dinner and not say anything, but I was really annoyed and I, could, I couldn't I could hold my tongue any longer and I had to say something. So I brought it up and I said, look, a few weeks ago, I showed you how I liked all the ingredients to be prepared and you've cut the onion and you've done it a different way. And as a result, it's really spoiled my meal and I'm feeling really annoyed right now. And I just want you to know because if I'm acting frosty, <laughs> that's why. So now poor Joe, he's super hurt. He feels super unappreciated. He's made this meal and I've just gone and criticised the way he's cut the onion and I'm not showing appreciation for all the rest of the things he's done that day, really dumb loving. And, you know, he was caring for me really well when I wasn't feeling good. And he's just done this little thing that's stepped on an emotional airline for me. So we were both upset with each other. So we took 30 minutes to calm down and I used the tool, the timeout, to ask why tool And I was reflecting, why am I so annoyed that he chopped the onion like that? I could have just picked off all the onion and sliced it myself. It would have taken two minutes. You know, what is wrong with me? Instead of spoilt the whole dinner by not being able to keep my mouth shut. So I think the answer when I took that to prayer and was reflecting on it was that in that moment, I felt that Joe did not love me. my thinking went, well, you know, I take the time to remember the way he likes his food prepared and the way he likes his food cut up. He doesn't like butter on his sandwiches, chilli flakes on his pizza, whatever. And in my mind at that moment, I thought he didn't care enough about me and to remember the way I liked my onion sliced in my Greek salad. And so I reacted really strongly. Not, It wasn't just the onion. It was the way it made me feel and my perception, mm-hmm. not the mm-hmm. reality.
0: Mm, so it Sorry. had symbolic meaning and it was the meaning you were associating with to the action because yes, you're right, dear. it feels so trite and so silly. Like, <laughs> I know. For goodness yeah. sakes, those cups, they hadn't been used you know, <laughs> in a year. Why would it bother me that we'd thrown them out? But there's that symbolic, yes. um, I guess, meaning to it, isn't it? And yeah. it, it really goes deep.
1: Yeah, I, and telling telling back that story, I feel like I sound crazy, but, you know, with self-awareness and also I think that emotional injury from childhood that I mentioned before, you know, my best friend saying that they did not want to be my friend anymore, you know, does Joe still love me? Does he still care enough to make note of the small little things that I like? Yeah. Um, And I think that's why I reacted so strongly. So I can look, we can look back at it now and laugh and use it as an example of, yeah, you've got a time out to ask why at all.
0: It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, so true. I often, I'm, I'm just thinking, listening to your talk, the image that I get in my mind on this family of origin stuff is like the attic in your house. And we put into those attic spaces, all the, the trash and the treasure of our past. You know, there's grandma's old sewing machine, there's old toys, some of them are broken, but some of them were really precious. That's, you know, the, the overloved Teddy, that's all disgusting and gross, but you can't get rid of it because it was so precious photo albums, your wedding dress, whatever, it's all kind of sitting up in the attic. Some of it's trash and some of it's treasure. But it's underneath. We're living in the rooms underneath and we're not even aware of the influence that that stuff is having having on us and on our thoughts and feelings and reactions until there's this trigger and it's like the roof falls in. And suddenly there's your dad's voice in your ear or your friend from childhood saying something hurtful that's just bringing everything up in a big rush again. And that image just comes to me over and over again as we're doing life together, feeling like, oh, my gosh, there's this history that sits above us you know and we're living underneath and we don't even know we're not even aware that it's influencing us half of the time most of the time
1: yeah that's a really good visual metaphor Fran we'll Mm -hmm. take a quick break now before we come back with some smart loving Q&A
0: Hi there, friends. This is Radio Maria Australia and it's time for a Smart Loving Q&A. We get questions every day from wives, husbands and couples from around the world. So what have you got for us, Laura, for this week?
1: So this is a question from Amanda and she asks, we've been married for a year and a half and my husband just got a promotion so he is working longer hours. My job is less demanding so I'm usually home before him and when he does get home, it's late and he's tired and he doesn't really want to talk with me. I'm feeling really lonely and starting to doubt that I made the right decision to marry him. How can I reconnect with him? Mm -hmm. So Amanda, that's really tough. Thank you for sharing, you know, your thoughts. Um, Look, just some things I would comment on. If your husband just got a promotion, I would imagine he's probably working longer hours, getting used to the new role to make sure he's also seen to be doing a good job in that new role at work so I would expect and hope it would settle down as he gets used to the role and gets faster at the new responsibilities but I'm just want to reassure you because I'm sure he wants to spend time with you but he may have an inherent need to be a strong provider for the family financially and I think a lot of men would feel that way too so a good question would be to ask if you look at his family of origin was his dad a really hard worker and was he away from home a lot due to his job and what about your own dad maybe your own father could have had a different role and was was regularly home on time so your own husband may be thinking that you know this is what husbands do and it's the best way to love you by helping to provide for you and for your home so and in the meantime you're feeling unloved so I guess you need to make sure that you're getting the emotional intimacy you need. So there's a great question that you can ask each other. And that is, at the end of the day, you can ask, what was your strongest emotion of the day, honey? That's a really good question. It will allow you to get an insight into his day. And then you can share your strongest emotion of the day and without overwhelming him with telling him everything you're feeling and all your thoughts. Whereas if he's tired, he might m- may not have that that energy, emotional energy to give to you. So you could also team that question up with a connect kiss for 20 seconds and a connect mm-hmm. hug. And that's just really practical way to connect with each other physically and emotionally. So another thing is, and I know you may not want to do it, but just to to try and show your appreciation to him. So, hey, honey, I just want to acknowledge and appreciate the fact you're working long hours for the family. And I'm so proud you got that promotion. You're, you're brilliant and you're obviously being recognized for that brilliance. So just appreciating him as a man and his talents, I think will, will he'll feel really loved. It would be a good mm-hmm. example of smart loving. Um, You could also say, look, I know you must be exhausted after your day, but could we make sure we have a few minutes each night to connect with one another? I would love some quality time with you to check in and share how both our days were. So perhaps start there and see how you go. And I'm Mm -hmm. I'm sure Fran will have some comments to add on to that too, some tips.
0: Oh, you've covered it so comprehensively. But I do relate to the question because that's been very much our story as well. And the reality is, is that marriage can be lonely. When you've got that big disparity in working hours and one one particularly is investing a lot outside the home and especially like i was the primary carer of our children so i was investing a lot in the home and so it can be lonely for both of you but we tend to i guess get more absorbed with our own experience and and become less aware of how the other might be feeling so your tips there laura are really are really good for that And I suppose the only other thing that I would add is just to remember that at the end of the day, the call of marriage is to love the other person. And ideally that will be mutual, but there will be seasons in our life where one is giving more than the other. It's not going to be, we never like to use the term 50-50, but I'd rather say 100-100 because really that's the commitment. The commitment is to give 100%, not just only give as much as the other person is giving. But the reality is in the seasons of marriage, there will be ebbs and flows and to just kind of be able to carry, sometimes you can be at peace with carrying our husband, or sometimes he's carrying you, and and just to bring that all to the Lord and let the Lord sanctify that kind of sacrifice that you make for your of your own needs in order to um, serve your husband. Uh, it's a sort of pretty important lesson for the long journey, I think. Otherwise, um, we can come undone very easily as a couple.
1: Well, if you've got questions for us, you can contact us via the Radio Maria website or by visiting www.smartloving.org forward slash conversations.
0: Now it comes to our last little little bit before we sign off, which is just our bless you. And we'd like to obviously share with you, our listeners, some of the things that have blessed us in our life. And so I might just go first, Laura. One of the things that's been a great blessing in my life over the last couple of years has been the Unbound Prayer Ministry, which is a a deliverance prayer format. It's hosted by the Heart of the Father Ministries. And I did uh, just encountered it as a participant about two years ago, and then I did the training. And it's just been transformative in terms of of, um, bringing The things that are happening in my life and putting them on the altar before the Lord and letting the Lord shape me and heal me in very practical ways. I'm the kind of personality I like, a little bit of structure and a framework, and this is a prayer format that just gives us five principles around how to kind of move towards a healing and towards encountering the Father's love more powerfully. So I've just found it such a gift in my life, and and we'll pop a link on uh, on our webpage for people who want to find out more about that.
1: Thanks for sharing that, Fran. My bless you for this Smart Loving Conversations is these beeswax wraps that love you can it. use. <laughs> and I know, Fran, you used to have a hive of bees, so you love all things, you know, uh, bees and honey and all the amazing things that they they produce. So, yeah, these beeswax wraps, you can use them instead of like single-use plastic wrap to wrap up your sandwiches or cover up an avocado or <laughs> cover a bowl of food. So i got a few of them and I've been loving them. Them. So I'd like to share that with our listeners, and if you see any at the shops, grab yourself some because they're good to have.
0: Yeah, and and just by coincidence, one of my Byron's cousins makes it like a kit where you can buy the you buy the wax bar and the cloth, and then you kind of grate it on and. It's a little bit messy. I have bought a couple of kits to support a business. It's a little bit messy, but you can now, uh, I'm noticing they're turning up in a lot of the shops and supermarkets. I think Aldi might have been selling them a few weeks ago. So yes. um, they are um a, a nice organic alternative to the plastic. Right. Yeah. Just don't put them in the microwave. They're not they're not good in the microwave.
1: No, don't put them in the microwave <laughs> for sure. <laughs> they're okay in the fridge
0: though. <laughs> yes, they're good in the fridge. Good in the fridge. Great for things like cheese and stuff, because it allows a little bit of of uh, breathing so it doesn't sort of mould, but also stops them drying out. It's kind of just that really good organic um, food preservation.
1: Yeah, good for the environment too, which is good to mm,
0: care yes. for our
1: common home. Let yeah. The Dar- and, we love,
0: <laughs> and we love our bees. I, I just love reflecting on the whole colony of bees and how they they work as a social unit that is within the hive. I, I do like to remind men that it's most hives, they're primarily girls, females, and the females do all the work, the drones, which are the males, they've only really got one job, and that's to uh, impregnate or fertilise a queen from another hive. Like they don't actually serve any function to the hive that they're in that sustains them, which is why the drones generally get killed off for the winter months, and because the girls, the girls do all the work, but they've got an incredibly self-sacrificing kind of approach. They work together for the good of the hive. So there's kind of some really good messages for us to reflect on and take home from our girls working hard in the beehive, not only producing beautiful honey for us to enjoy, but also um, working hard to preserve the common good and the common wealth of the uh, of the hive itself. That brings us to the end of our time, Laura. So it's been great spending it with you, our listeners. You can find more information about Smart Loving, including links to our blessings, the show notes and more at smartloving.org slash conversations. That's www.smartloving.org forward slash conversations. We're Francine Parola and Laura Kane from Smart Loving and we pray that you will be blessed in your walk with the Lord today and we lift you up and all your attentions to our patron saints, Our Lady Andura of Knotts, pray for us, and St. John Paul II, pray for us. This is Radio Maria Australia. Goodbye.